Well, good evening, everyone. And this is Rich Spirago, known as MetsFanRich on Twitter. And welcome to the 13th episode of the Metsian Podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. And uh, there's a lot to talk about, right? Um, none of it good, but, but there's a lot to talk about nonetheless. So we'll go with quantity tonight. Uh, certainly a lot of topics to cover. And to help me make a go of this 13th episode of the Metsian Podcast, I have my two colleagues with me. Let me wheel around to Brooklyn and um, introduce Mr. Mike LaCollet. Mike, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you. How are you, Rich? I'm doing well. Thank you. And we're going to take that wheel. We're going to make it a little bigger. We're going to wheel out to, uh, to the Midwestern part of the U.S. and uh, welcome in the founder of the Messian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, none other than Mr. Sam Maxwell. Sam, how are you doing tonight? Well, I think it is a three-headed monster that we have uh, between the three of us, uh, uh, I would have to say. But I appreciate uh, the kind words, and it's, it's fantastic. It was like 101 degrees out here, and I didn't even break a sweat while I, I, I biked around the city. So I, uh, I have to give props to Denver for its dryness. Great. You know, and Sam, maybe before we get in, onto the Mets, um, I was at a meeting in Denver in January. When we have our sales meetings at, at various cities, they always, always start the meeting with fun facts about the city you're in. And the one fact about Denver that, um, that stood out to me is that of any major city in the U.S., Denver has the most days with sunshine. Care to elaborate? It does. It does. Now, having just gone through the winter, I have to say it's a pretty mild winter with very little snow. In fact, they probably don't put too much investment in plowing uh, because they're used to it melting by the afternoon uh, or just the next day's morning, really, even. Um, so, that, yeah, there's a, it, 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 it can, like, teeter on, like, 45. Obviously, like, when it drops down, it gets really, really bitter. Uh, and I was in a basement down here, uh, which is obviously the coldest place in the uh, in an old 1840s household. But yeah, uh, they, that 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 is what they say. And having been here uh, uh, for about nine months now, I have to say they they have a point about it being the the most sunny days of the year. I uh, there was many a time where I just be like, the weather's amazing, and just hear you guys going on and on and on and on about how awful the weather is in the Northeast, and I was looking out the window and seeing sunshine. So, uh, yeah, that that is that that is my elaboration. I love it, love it. Yeah, and I they put the number up, and I'm going to hazard a guess. It was something obnoxious. It was like 313 days a year. It was, it was in the low 300s that there is some sun in Denver, and and that just blows your mind. But um, because when you've and, not and lived funny, there. I, I, was, I was going to say, too, that Howie actually mentioned that. They're like, uh, you know, they always like to say that whenever we come out, it's the 300 days of the year. But how come the Mets always have to take the brunt of the, one of those days, <laughs> one of the rainy <laughs> days? Because <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, think about, like, this. And, in fact, this is actually a perfect segue to our episode number, number 13, that was the big snowstorm out in Colorado. Was uh, 2013 at the Mets hit? Right, right. And they went from Minnesota to Colorado in early April, and and we know what that could be like. So I remember they had snow in both places. And um, yeah, exactly. so may, maybe that can be um, 
maybe that could be a topic of another of another podcast as we go along, which would be the the scheduling in baseball. And I know there's been a lot of talk about that. You know, maybe going to different division divisional format and shortening the season, but that'll be a topic for another day. Let, let's go to the show for tonight, the 13th episode, as I mentioned, of the Metzian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, and, um, and and you know, we'll we'll go to some somber news. Let, let's start here. I think it's only appropriate. Um, on Tuesday, word came down that Mets general manager Sandy Alderson has a recurrence of his cancer, and. Um, of course, is stepping down to tend to his health, as anyone in that situation would. Um, so what I find, I'm going to go to you first on this one, Mike. What I find interesting, and I'll, I'll let you guys just run with whatever you want to say about this situation, is that the heat had been turned up on Sandy this season more than any other for the performance. It just seems like, you know, I know we've all probably read the article by Mike Vaccaro of The Post, which I think published on Sunday, where he said that he basically said 100% accountability is for Sandy Alderson. He's not very good at his job, all those things. Um, and a lot of people all season long have been saying, you know what, it's not the Wilpons or, you know, 10th highest payroll. This is on Alderson. No farm system, bad signings. And then you start to go into history and you say, he signed this guy that year, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have done that, blah, 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 blah. And it just seems like Sandy was under the microscope, and then, as fate would have it, this news comes out. And and as someone who himself, being me, was sharply critical of Sandy, sure, you feel bad, you feel terrible. You feel bad for anybody in that situation. But you feel a little bit bad that you, know, that you were kind of picking on the guy. And where I've gotten to with it is I've gotten to a place in my mind where I've said, look, you could criticize somebody's job performance and not be criticizing a human being and, of course, wish the man, you know, many, many, many years of, of health and happiness, which is exactly where I am. Um, but on some level, you, you feel a little guilty that you were picking on a guy who was, you know, who for the past at least six months or so, as I said, he has been traveling with the team, has had a recurrence of cancer and uh, was undergoing treatment. And, and just the human side of you feels bad for, for calling out his job performance because in the end, you know it's baseball. It's not about this is a man who has a wife and kids and grandkids, and, and life is more important. So that's my little speech. Um, Mike, uh, what do you think of, of the news, um, the way Sandy's been treated, the way the story's been handled by the media and the fans? What do you think, Mike? I'd venture to say that I think everyone has either experienced cancer-related matters within their own family or at least knows somebody. Uh, who has gone through that. Uh, and as far as Andy, Sandy Alderson is concerned, uh, very simply, my prayers are with him and his family and his loved ones and his friends and his, you know, circle of confidants. And I just wish him the best of my mother. who dealt with cancer in the 70s, and she's still alive today. I did lose an uncle to cancer. Uh, so, uh, like I said, I think we all, uh, in one form or another, had to deal with this. Uh, whether in a larger sense or a smaller sense, uh, all relative. But I just wish him well. Uh, you know, it's it's okay to talk baseball. Uh, you know, because as they say uh, on, on TV and on the radio, is that this is the candy store. And, and I, I think we're adult enough to compartmentalize, you know, one from the other. So that being said. I, 
my context of Sandy Alderson is really completely different and centered around the Wilpons. Uh, why would the commissioner feel a, a need and an urgency to intercede in the Wilpons matter and, and make Sandy Alderson available to them? Uh, and that was to somehow help them keep the team afloat. So, you know, there's only so many things I'm willing to blame Sandy Alderson for. I'd rather place a lot of this blame above him and his office, his realm of responsibilities. Uh, but, yeah, uh, coming into this, I, I thought he put together a pretty damn good staff, man. Him, between him and, and Paul D. Podesta and J.P. Ricciardi, you know, I, I thought that was a good staff, a, quali- a qualified staff, an experienced staff, uh, and I was all in on the rebuild. Uh, and then, lo and behold, we won the National League Championship, but here we are. Uh, and, you know, I'm not afraid to venture off into in, in, in this direction, but with, with a little bit of hyperbole, here we are in, in my worst-case scenario because the Mets have been here. I've been speaking about this. I've written about this. I said this in the podcast last week that, once again, the Wilpons are, are, are surrounded by very, very familiar people, and they still don't know how to go off campus and bring in different independent ideas. Uh, again, the commissioner handed Sandy Alderson to this organization. Outside of Frank Cashin, they've never had to go off campus and, and, and conduct a search and hire somebody that they didn't already know, they didn't already know well, and in return, that person knew the Wilpons very well. So there's J.P. Ricciardi, there's uh, Rico, and, and there's Manaya. And I'm not quite sure where this is headed. You know, for the remainder of the season, I'm fine with whatever plan they come up with. But I think they're in a very unique position once again to finally get this thing done right. And so before I continue on and on, uh, I'll just leave it at that. Good take. Um, Sam. What were your thoughts when you heard about uh, Sandy's condition and uh, and then taking that a step further into, um, you know, into the, how the news affected the team and, and some of the criticism Sandy's gotten? And, and where's your head with the whole thing? Well, I was just at the, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's hard because some people still are trolled on Twitter. And so, you know, after it all came out, and, of course, first off, you know, I, I I literally within yesterday was the month anniversary of when my dad died of pancreatic cancer. So I, yeah, it's like extremely close to home right now within the, the last, you know, less than, less than eight weeks ago, uh, we're dealing with this. So the first thing you hear is just fucking cancer, man, uh, is the first thing you think of. It's, it's just, and, and you hear the numbers that I think like 40% of all human beings are eventually going to get cancer. So it's just uh, an unfortunate part of life that we, we are trying to battle, but even when we try our hardest and have all the money, I mean, look at pancreatic cancer, not only took my dad, but also took Steve Jobs, who had all the money in the world. Um, so it's a tough one in cancer stuff, and, and I wish him nothing but the best. And it's also where, you know, we start reminiscing back to 2015, and that's when it first came up for Sandy. 
was during the championship series, during during the championship uh, run. So it 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 so just all the emotions are bittersweet because you do look back on it and you give them some credit. It took a while, but it goes back to what Mike says. I, and I have this argument about I'm I'm enough of hearing about the Wilpon. Sandy didn't do a good job with 155 million, but then you go back to the context of what we know about the Wilpons, what we know about Jeff. And, and Brian from Good Fundies put together a really, really solid database of all the different, just basically all the different articles that talk about the Wilpons over the years, going all the way back to the last decade, the beginning of last decade. And the pattern you see is that Jeff Wilpon fancies himself a baseball guy and keeps meddling in grade. And because of my opinion about the Wilpons, I understand it's not fair to to only go incomplete when it comes to the grades with Sandy. But, you know, I, I personally think that more could have been done early on, but that wasn't Sandy Alderson not wanting to do more. Um, and he eventually set us up to have a, a sustained, potentially have some sustained success. I think, uh, I think he suffered from loss of Paul DiPadista for sure. Um, but we're really kind of just starting to see all of that right now. Uh, Nimmo was Paul DiPadista. Dominic Smith, I believe, was part of the Paul DiPadista era. Um, and since Paul has gone, mostly pitchers. But that's also because they've had some pitchers graduating. They've had to give up some pitchers. So I still think that's the appropriate strategy. And hope you know we'll see where it goes from here with the uh, – the three-headed monster, as, as uh, you, you mentioned, Rich, and we'll, uh, I'm sure you're going to segue over there in a moment, so I'll let you have that cue. But, uh, yeah, when it, when it comes to Sandy Alderson, you've you got to say that it was a mostly successful run. It, it, we don't know where we're currently at, but he gave them every, every chance to sustain success. And now it's a relay race. You pass, you pass the baton and see if the Wilpons. I mean, looking at and, and I'll finish with this. Jeff's got some gray hairs on him. He does have some experience now, and maybe he's he's learned a little bit. Who knows? It doesn't seem like it. And 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 and, and it's more all you know. It's just more of the same and more of the same. But who knows? Maybe at this point we have to give him the benefit of the doubt because right now maybe the best way is for it to crash and burn and maybe what this new three-headed monster uh, uh, sees happening around the league is tanking and then figuring out your strategy from there. So maybe, I mean, look, and you look at a loss like last night. I mean, it was completely avoidable, but that, that, that's not tanking. That was just a rookie manager not getting it done properly and, 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 not feeling it out, but but that's that's a whole different segue. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I think Sandy generally, you know, my my biggest thing for Sandy was he he was he came in here and gave them somewhat of a foundation. It's a little in shambles right now, but you still see where uh, it was going. There's some concerns about uh, again the lack of fundamentals at the at the lower part of the farm system, but it always goes back to the top. As much as Sandy Alderson can can do, there's another person that needs to be paying attention to the details, and that's the owners. Fair enough. And, um, you know, Sam, you alluded to it. Um, 
as, as you were speaking, and I did too, and, and I think Mike did as well. So Sandy has stepped aside, and what is, I'll use the word interesting to be polite, about the way the Mets are approaching this is they have Sandy's three lieutenants sort of co-running the baseball operations now, John Rico, Omar Minaya, and J.P. Ricciardi. Now, certainly there's some pedigree there. Um, Rico has been with the Mets, I believe it's coming up on 15 years in a front office capacity. Uh, So he knows the organization. He obviously knows the game very well. Great. Ricciardi has been a general manager uh, in Toronto, an assistant in Boston. So great, got some pedigree there. And then, um, and then Manaya, we all know, is you know former Mets GM, former vice president out in San Diego. So and and uh, Mets director of scouting at one point too. So so there's a lot of stuff, but the issue is that there are three of them. And uh, you know, I heard today that maybe John Rico is kind of the lead guy. But that's not entirely well accepted, nor is it clear. Um, and what we heard Tuesday was that the three of them would come up with a somehow a line on a recommendation or recommendations, take him to Jeff Wilpon for final endorsement. So, um, you, you know, it's like that thing in the NFL when you have two quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback. Well, Mets have three general managers, and they may not have a general manager. And if it were calm waters for the franchise, that might be sustainable till the end of the year. Um, but the waters are not calm. What the Mets are going to do potentially at the deadline, um, and you read different things. I mean, you read things from they're going to trade people like Familia and, and Cabrera, you know, guys with expiring contracts, so they're going to gut the whole thing, whatever. We'll get to that later in the show. But at a time when, when the team is going to be active, there is not somebody clearly in charge making the call. And – you know, you could take that two ways. You could take it as consensus is a good thing, different perspectives. You you know, you, you align on a plan and you go, and, and you, maybe it's a really good decision because you've gotten a lot of perspectives. Or maybe you could take the cynical view, which I think is the one most people are taking, which is who the hell's in charge around here and who's going to, you know, make these decisions. Somebody has to. And, and this is a critical time. So, uh, Mike, I'm going to go to you. I'm not sure where you are on this one, but I'd like your thoughts on um, on first. I'm, I have several questions about the GM thing, but we'll, we'll isolate this one first. So first, um, what do you think about going with the three of them and not officially naming somebody in charge? Do you think it could work, um, and where do you stand on that? Well, again, for this season, you know, whatever plan they come up with is fine. Uh we're in damage control mode now. It's by next season they have to have a firm commitment to a new direction. Uh, John Rico, Omar, and I, JP, which already, in my opinion, are too tethered to the Wilpons. Uh, their relationship, all three of them, goes back for at least a decade. JP Wichardi's goes back to uh, 2010. Omar, and I is older. John Rico's goes back to Omar, and I's as well. So all these people know each other. They know the Wilpons too well, and, and the Wilpons know these individuals too well. And I don't like that because if you put them in a meeting room together, I feel that Jeff Wilpon is still going to hold sway. Uh, but that being said, what, it's June 28th, so I hope within the next, you know, roughly month remaining before the trade deadline that the four of them 
can reach uh, uh, you know consensus on a plan and act with conviction. That's the best I can hope for this season. But I don't like the situation one. Uh, but I'm willing to finish out the season like this. But by next season, uh, things have to you know radically change. And I'm not in favor of any of the three becoming general manager of this team. Very well reasoned approach, um, Sam. Where are you on it? Well, I just kind of find it funny. It's like a bait and switch. The Wilsons never wanted to fire Omar Minaya in the first place. They forced him into back into the organization uh, over over the the winter, and now Sandy Alderson is forced out, and the Wilsons have everything exactly as they want it to be. <sighs> I mean, I think that I'm willing to give Rico the benefit of the doubt that he's been waiting and planning. And, and if he's the one, I mean, uh, Rich, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the one who stated everything is on the table today. He did. So maybe he is the one in charge, and maybe now it's time for him to put up or shut up and kind of almost like in the position that Brian Cashman was two years ago, uh, where – Everybody, you know, for like right now, Mike is like you're too. He's too uh, connected, and he's not going to make his own decisions. Um, but everybody at the time was telling, was saying that Brian Cashman, he's only a, a product of of the Yankees. He's only a product of all that money. And you know, as much as I don't like how quickly the Yankees can rebuild, that was still you saw how good it was in the moment, and he didn't think they were going to be as quick as they were uh, turning it around to last, to last year and now this year. Um, so the way I see it at the same time, if, if we're comparing, Brian Cashman obviously was a very young GM when he first started in 1998. He was like 32 years old, uh, and he had a lot of actual major league uh, GM experience. Rico has just been on the side, but he's been there for a very long time with a lot of different GMs. Maybe it is his turn to put his impact and actually bring back a, a potential turnaround that's a lot quicker than what looks like it's going to be right now um, if everybody is on the table. As much as I want to lock down Jacob DeGrom, as much as I want to lock down Noah Syndergaard, maybe these are something that you have to look at uh, in the future if they do want to be met for the long term uh, because right now you have to figure out how you can replenish the farm system and make the most of, of everything possible. I don't want to trade Jacob DeGrom. I think he is, if any, the, the biggest issue with that is the fact that he could bring back the biggest haul. And we had this conversation last week, but as much as I said, like, I don't want under any circumstances to trade Jacob DeGrom. You just keep seeing where, where we're at, you know, maybe it's time to break up the band. Well, maybe, and, you know, and as we move through the show, I definitely want to get to specifics on, you know, some players and, and things that the Mets might want to think about or what you think they'll do as we get closer. But, but what I think I've heard from both of you guys is that, you know, the three-headed monster is, is probably, you know, not sustainable and, and maybe not good in the short term as well. Um, so let me ask you this. I'll go to you on uh, first, Sam, here, is – if the three-headed GM is, is not sustainable, and look, it isn't. I mean, there's no way that's sustainable over the long term. When, when it comes time, whether it's later this season, which I've heard it might be later this season as well, that they go on a search for a GM, whether it's that or, or in the off season, 
what what are you gonna what do you want them to look for? You know, if you have a name that's great, but what what would be a profile of somebody you would like them to look for in a GM? So Sam, run with that one. I I gotta plagiarize Mike here. Um, you know, in outside sports, Sandy Alderson was partially a a a, a, a catered uh, uh, by the uh, commissioner force. Um, I, I think like a John Daniels. We've all, we've always been saying because he was a Mets fan, but you know he's been pretty intertwined into uh, Texas at this point. But that's basically what I'm uh, from the off-season perspective. What I'm looking for for GM or, or whenever they get it done, um, it's either just give it to Rico and see where he can run with it, or go on the outside like Mike said. Mike, I think I know where you're going to go with it, but please do. Tell me tell me the profile. If you've got to pick a couple of things of what the next GM should look like uh, qualification-wise, what would that be? My answer would be whatever the president of baseball operations decides, Rich. That's what I want, a president of baseball operations that's going to separate the Wilpons from the baseball side of this organization. Let them be owners and count their money and do whatever it is that they do in their offices. But give me a president of baseball operations. And you know what? Give me that. And John Rico could be my general manager. And Omar Minai and J.P. Wichardi can stay employed in their present capacity. I wouldn't have a problem with that. But what I need is somebody separating the Wilpons from baseball operations. A highly qualified executive. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and that's what I want. So whatever profile the president deems appropriate, well, then that's what I'm going with. Uh, and like I said, it's not that I have an address for these guys. It's just that we're repeating history. We've been in this situation with Frank Cashin, Al Harrison, Joe McLevin, Jerry Hunsicker, and Steve Phillips. We're repeating history, and that's what I want to avoid without having to go on a rant. You understand? So Rico can stay, Manaya can stay, Richardi can stay, they all can stay together. You know? But I need a president of baseball operations. That's what I need, Rich. I need a buffer between the owners and everything else. You know, essentially. And this president of baseball operations must ensure that the Wilpons needs are fulfilled and met. The other side of the equation, he needs to ensure that Baseball operations are, are, are kept on the straight and narrow and that they uh, allocate scouts as needed in the places where, they, where they're needed, et cetera, et cetera. He's the one who's going to keep it on the straight and narrow. And that's what I want, a buffer. But And, and here's, here's where the rub lies. There's Jeff Wilpons, the COO. He's the chief operating officer, and that's how he presents himself He's operating the baseball stuff too, and it's it's insane. You're absolutely right, Mike. But the pro- the reason probably why there isn't a team president of baseball operations is because Jeff fancies himself that it's just been a different title. Well, he can humble himself. You're both. That's I think you guys are right. Good, because <laughs> that's what this is all about: humbling yourself and saying, "I don't run a good organization." I need somebody in, in here who can. Look at my record. It speaks for itself. Humble yourself. 
So this president of baseball operations, I'll state the obvious. You know, I, I'll speak for you guys. Tell me if I'm wrong. Does not come from within the organization, right? It needs to be somebody from the outside, right? It needs to be somebody from the outside because he can't have any kind of compassion towards the Wilpons in any shape, way, or form. And I mean that in relative loose terms. He needs to be an independent thinker free of their history. And he needs to come in and just serve the best interests of the organization. If you follow me. I do. No, I totally do. I, I get it. You know, other teams have it. You know, they have a vice president of baseball operations and a GM who reports up to that person. That, that you know, the structure is not uncommon. Um, well, the, and the Mets don't have particu- structure. I'm sorry to interrupt, Rich, but the Mets don't have structure. How many times have we heard that the Mets run a collegial atmosphere? How many times have we heard that? You know, Kumbaya in the front house. situation so right now. I, the whole I want situation. a command, a chain of command, a firm chain, chain of command. So, sorry, I'm with you. I, I know I cut my off. I know I cut Mike off there, Rich. But that's the thing. It, this game, what Mike's talking about, is is exposed in the whole bunting situation from this week when, you know, uh, Mickey was asked why Dominic didn't bunt in a certain situation or bunt against the ship. And he said, well, uh, Dom never learned how to bunt. What? Ponders. And then all of, a su- all of a sudden we're seeing Rosario taking bunting lessons because the press is talking about it. Reactionary, uh, uh, unorganized. You know, I'm, I'm one to speak, but my, my, like, my existence in the Mets' uh, success or not there, you know, non-thereafter just can't intersect. Like, it just feels all, like, like it's just it's all happening at the same time. Like it's the Mets are voodoo to my life, guys. Me too, me too. And and w- great segue, Sam. Thank you for that. Because what I want to do next is I want to move to another very pleasant topic. Said sarcastically, um, the play of the team of late. It, you know, and when I thought about prompting you guys for this, I can't even give you one. There's so much. There's so much that I'm sure is driving you crazy that it would be unfair of me to limit you to comment on one thing. So this is going to be kind of free-form commentary. Mike, I'll go to you first, but, but let me tell you a couple things in my mind. No, no random, in no particular order. The Dom Smith thing about the bunt, okay, um, they, they say, well, no, we, we can't have Dom Smith bunt because, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't bunt. We would ask the bunt. Okay, but, but Dom Smith played four games in the outfield in minor league baseball in his life and you put him in the outfield so don't give me this shit about he never did something you can't ask him to do it he can hurt you a lot more in the outfield for nine innings than he can bunting once so let's just stop that argument right there about guys are not prepared and they should be prepared I know that that's what you're probably thinking should be prepared for uh, for bunting okay one thing the other thing the other night is granted they won the game which is a rarity who the hell is telling Cabrera to bunt in that spot? And is it reactionary, like Sam said, because it made no freaking sense. I'm a fan of small ball. Mike and I both are. Mets have first and second, no outs, bottom of the ninth high game. Cabrera's your cleanup hitter. I don't even have a problem with the cleanup hitter bunting, if it's the right thing. But Cabrera, if he got the bunt down successfully, what would have happened is they would have walked the next hitter, and they had a lefty on the mound. The next hitter, I believe, was, was Frazier or Miserocco. It was a righty. 
they would have walked the next hitter and put Dom up lefty on lefty. So what you're doing by sacrificing there is you're saying you want to put the the game in the hands of your rookie against a, a left-handed hitting rookie against a left-handed pitcher. That's what you're setting yourself up for. It made no sense to bunt in that spot. So it's that. It's last night. You know what? I know they're out of it, and the games mean nothing at this point in the standings. I went to bed angry after that game last night because Familia, 28 pitches the night before, should not have been on the mound. We know that doesn't play well. Swarzak should have been the closer last night. And if you and if you want to throw Familia out there, and Gary Cohen said it, Darling said it, Nelson Figueroa went ballistic about it. How do you not have somebody warming up when it's clear this guy doesn't have it and he's on fumes anyway? So the mismanagement of this stuff, so it's the lack of fundamentals. It's the reactionary stuff. Oh, we didn't bunt, so now everybody's going to bunt. It's reactionary crap. It's the misuse of the bullpen and the bad decisions and the snippiness of the manager in the postgame conference that Nelson was all over. So, Mike, I don't even know where you might want to go with this, but talk to me about the recent play of the club. Uh, disgusting. I mean, what can we say? The entirety of this whole situation, you said it, Dom Smith in left field. I'll throw in Conforto in center field and any other player playing out of, out of position is the product of a poorly run organization. And I don't necessarily put the entirety of the blame on Sandy Alderson. We're not going to go there again. We've already been there, done that. But, yeah, Rich, cats and dogs playing together. The fundamentals are just, they've gone. They've left the building. They're hanging out with Elvis somewhere, you know. What do we make of this? You know, if if winning is contagious, then losing is like the plague. And what we're seeing is sickly. Uh, but if we want to get specific about this and Mickey Calloway, we're roughly, what, at the midway point of the season, and his American League sensibilities are really shining through. I think he's unprepared to be, A, a manager, and A, one, a manager in the National League. Uh some of his decisions make Terry Collins look very good by comparison. Uh, ponderous. Ponderous. I can't find another word. Everything's going awry. And, and so I'll just say again what I said earlier in the show. The Mets are once again in a very unique position to finally get this done right. Uh, unfortunately, Mickey Calloway has years of money left on his contract, so he's not going anywhere unless the Will Ponds and, I guess, the three-headed monster are willing to eat that money, which I seriously doubt. So we're probably stuck with this, and, you know, on-the-job training is order of the day. Oh, boy, but does he need to improve? Because, you know, I never specifically called out Terry Collins on any given move. I just talked in generalities. But, you know, Mickey Callaway, uh you know, some of his moves are right at the tip of my tongue, and I'm trying to refrain from really going off on this amateur. Oops, there's a word. So th- that's where I am, Rich. I mean, this is really, really, and you're and you're absolutely right when you use the word reactionary. Everything's reactive. Everything's reactive. 
uh, and, and just the, the the lack of fundamentals and the, the lack of a standard operating procedure from rookie ball on, you know, through Vegas and and to Flushing, it's 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 sick. It's sick, like it's like the plague. You know, I think it was uh, David Lennon who was on Twitter the other night said. The Mets are sick. It's not that they're injured. They're sick. They shouldn't be this bad, and they shouldn't be. I mean, no team should be. You know, this this team might not be a, a contender, but they shouldn't be this bad. Nobody. The 62 Mets were not this. The Mets are playing 31% winning baseball since since uh, since the since the 11 and one. I mean, 31%. That that's worse than I, the 62 Mets. And when I are you kidding me? Right, here. So, okay, so guys, do we do we playing. think this team can? Do we do we think this team can uh, lose 100? And yes, at this point, would you just let them? Well, but now I want to go to you, Sam. That that might be a good segue for you. So similar similarly to the way Mike and I did, just tell me what's bugging you about the recent play, among many things. That it's 62 likes. It's almost like for me at this point. Um, I, I mean, I'm in a weird state. You know, in general, I haven't been writing. I've been dealing with with, uh, everything out here. And when I look at the Mets, it's almost like, you know, in April, there was some hope, Dad. And then all of a sudden, you know, unfortunately, things took a turn for the worse. It's exactly the way. And this was the season that I pegged. This was the year that I pegged for one, uh, for myself to take another step successfully. And, And for two... I was like, you know what? I don't really feel like 17th the year, but 18 really feels right. I was I was looking at some of the trajectory with Dominic Smith and Ahmed Rosario coming. This was, you know, back in even like 2015, 2016. I was just like, I, I just have this feeling that everything's going to come together this year. The fact that it's not, and like I said, it's 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 sometimes weird the way since I I decided to convert. Uh, the way that 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 underdog, the way that I, I my own personal decisions have led me to almost mirror the way the Mets trajectory has gone. Um, uh, the year that the day that they uh, started Game One of the World Series in 2015, I closed on the first time uh, on an apartment for the first time ever in my life. I was I was a homeowner, quote unquote. Uh, but even as I visited Gil Hodges' grave two blocks away from my apartment inadvertently. Uh, Gil Hodges, if he were looking over, was still saying, congratulations, you still have a long way to go, buddy. And that's kind of, you know, I'm living out of my sister's basement out here. Uh, but not to make it all about me, I'm just saying it's weird <laughs> the way the trajectory works. Now, who knows? I mean, I also to uh, shamelessly plug, made a movie about my dad this entire time, gave him a starring role finally after he was a bit part film actor for so many years. And it was the only way for him to go out and it was the only thing that I could possibly do and could do with myself and my, my dad. Uh, it, it, it also uh, would have, it also made the entire situation a lot less boring because um, as much as, as as hard as that entire situation could be, adding an entire film making element uh, can be can be even crazier. But it still works for uh, non boringness, if you will. 
although life is never boring. But anyway, uh, I know I digress a little bit, but, but, but that's, that's my point, that this, I, I'm very tied up emotionally to it, but at the same time, I've been very, very numb about the whole thing because of where I am in my life while I'm watching it all fall apart. And, and it, it's part of the mourning process in, that, in some fashion. I wanted to go to uh, – I wanted to try to get uh, uh, hooked up at, at the Rockies at, at uh, Coors Field uh, letting them, you know, having them let me film the documentary had my dad survived. That's one of what I've been planning on, on doing, and it didn't happen. And, you know, the 2018 Mets, wherever they go, they're always going to be tied up for for me in that. And a part of me, you know, where I currently am and tying that selfishly with where the Mets currently are, a part of me just wants to let it crash and burn so you could let that forest grow again. Well, you know, I think that's where a lot of people are. You know, you hear that term tanking in sports now, and I, I'm not sure if any fan, I know I don't, but maybe, I don't know if I'm I'm in the minority or, or the other people in the minority, but some people say, oh, you know, they want them to have the worst record in baseball to so get the first draft pick. I mean, I can't go through that personally. <laughs> like, I hate losing. I don't care if the game's, like last night, that game, in next week, that game's not going to matter. But it bothered the living hell out of me, and I just hate to lose, but... I get it. I understand why. I think in other sports it's, it's becoming um, apparent when teams are tanking to get draft picks and such, and it is a reality. So, all right, guys, so we talked about how this season's a dumpster fire. We, you know, we touched on curious or ponderous, to quote Mike, moves by the manager, um, lack of fundamentals, lack of depth in the farm system, all of that. So, one point we could agree on is the 2018 Mets are, are a disaster. They're not going anywhere. So now it's time to have a strategy, a strategy at the trade deadline, a strategy in the off season. So, Mike, I'll start with you here. Uh, the question is going to be, at the trade deadline, what do you want to see them do? I mean, do you want to see them – I see it in two ways. They could dabble you know, get rid of the obvious ones, Familia, Cabrera, Blevins, guys whose contracts are coming to an end. Okay. Maybe you get back a double-A prospect for each one of them. Okay. And then you hold your chips until the end of the season when the new GM is in place, hopefully, and uh, and you do your, your business there. Or do you try to strike while the iron's hot? Maybe do something, as Rico says, out of the box. Um, you know, something where maybe it's the Grom, maybe it's Syndergaard, maybe it's a couple of the other guys. You know, maybe it's a package of Lugo and Matz. You give somebody a great reliever and a, and a fifth starter, fourth starter, and a Cabrera, and maybe you bring back four prospects, something like that. So you're holding Syndergaard and DeGrom, but you're moving significant pieces to get younger pieces back. So, Mike, what do you want to see them do? In all sincerity, Rich, I want to see them – eat some money. I want to see them trade off some players, as you say, and I want them to get young again and retain uh, a small core of younger players that they have presently. That's what I want. Uh, I want the older players that they've bogged down numerous positions with gone. Uh, We're going to have a hard time moving Cespedes. That may not happen. But Bruce, uh, you know, it's not a lot of money to eat. I, I would like him out of the way. I would like uh, Frazier out of the way. I would like Cabrera out of the way. 
you know, and and just give these positions to youth. Turn it over. Uh, keep Brandon Nimmo, obviously. Keep Conforto. Keep Rosario. Uh, I even like Miserocco if we if he can manage to uh, continue to stay healthy. Uh, but you know, start addressing some needs. You know, tanking doesn't exist in baseball like it does in the other sports. There's really nothing to be gained by tanking in baseball. It's quite, it's quite literally luck. Uh, you know, who you who you hit and who you miss with. Uh, you know, but we've seen some very well-paid teams uh, lose 100 games before or, or damn near it. Haven't we, Rich? 93, 2003, uh, etc. So, you know, but there's nothing really to be gained by that. Just trade off players that just are or have no future with this organization that at some point, you know, turn the corner, decide on what direction this organization is going to be, and, and act at the deadline. Free yourself up. Free yourself up these, uh, of these old players that since 2015 – when you started playing win now baseball, you know, a look at the results of that. Here we are. So we need to correct that mistake. And I would like to see at this, at this trade deadline, uh, cast off as many players that you mentioned, if not more, keep the core, get younger, uh, and just hand these positions over and we'll take it from there. So you answered my other question, which is, so you'd like to see them active at the deadline. And, and I agree with that because, you, you know, depending upon who you listen to, some people say, well, you know, you don't want to make your big moves at the deadline. You want to make them in the off season." Well, I'm not sure that I agree with that because at the deadline, that's when teams have played this year with the all-star break being a bit later. They will, teams will have played 90-plus games, and, and the ones who are in it know they're in it. And the ones who say, damn, we're in it, and we're, you know, one or two players away – they're gonna. They're the ones who are gonna pay the most. They're the ones who are gonna overpay for prospects to try to capitalize on their win on their window. So I've always felt that deadline deals you might be able to get more if you're a seller um, than you would in the off season when when the uh, when everybody's on the same playing field. So so Sam, your turn. Um, what would you like to see the Mets do in terms of a strategy at the deadline and going forward? I'm gonna start with Todd Frazier. Uh, I think that is, I mean, that's a manageable contract, two years. Uh, and, and, you know, Mike brought him up. Uh, yeah, you got you got to definitely, you know, he's obviously not batting well right now, but that's never stopped people from picking him up and, and thinking that he'd be the spark that, that lights the candle. Um, Estrebal Cabrera is as good as gone. It's funny that it's been a cat and mouse game, but now it's just definite unless the Mets turn it around. It's the only way as Dribble Cabrera stays, and that's not going to happen. I'd rather that, like I was just saying, at this point, I'd rather that not happen. Um, yeah, I think you need to... So, can we segue after this to Zach Wheeler? What do you do with Zach Wheeler? Is he a part of this... Well, you got to move him now. Uh, but, like, there's a part of me that's like, he's just getting it together. I don't know. Mike, want to jump on that? Zach Wheeler, so high. I agree. I think... Yeah, I think the the Mets... I think what people are... Where people are mistaken is that the only way for the Mets to get a haul of prospects is to trade DeGrom or Syndergaard. No, 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 no. 
they have other assets that have value. Mats, yeah. Wheeler, Lugo, Gaselman. You don't even have to trade all of them. You know, if you again, I keep saying this, but package, package a Lugo and a Cabrera and a Familia. If there's a team out there where all three are a fit, you'll get back two or three good prospects, and you haven't lost much. You don't want you don't want Familia around anyway. You know, he's his contract's expiring. Cabrera, you don't want him around anyway. And maybe you know the one piece that was controllable, a Gaselman or a Lugo or, or a Wheeler or a Mets. But but you don't have to g- trade from the very top of your mountain. You could trade that second tier, a couple of second tier guys, and bring back something. But Sam, go ahead. What else do you want to see him do? Can we talk about how bad uh, Jarvis Familia is and whether Ooh. he would give, get back much right now? Well, apparently the Astros are interested in him. Uh, yes, they have a closer, and as far as I'm concerned, from watching the postseason last year, their bullpen's pretty darn good. But okay, they want to, they want can I, him. Can I just say? Can I throw it out there though that Juris Familia is not the closer anymore? And I liked what the Mets had going when they were bringing him in the eighth inning when he when they demoted him briefly. I forget exactly who was uh, working the ninth. Lugo, Gazellan, one of them. That was a good strategy. Why did Mickey give up on that strategy? That was a good because he, he because once again you know they're letting the players dictate everything. I mean, if you're going to be this, and Greg Prince touched on this in the uh, uh, in his piece about it today. I've never seen Greg Prince be really angrier. He's not exactly angry, and we'll have him on here. Unfortunately, he was uh, he couldn't be on here, but fortunately, he was at Two Boots doing a Mets. Uh, event tonight with John Springer as well, but um, he he was he's just fed up with Mickey, obviously, and he was talking about how Mickey was billed as new age bullpen guy that he's going to be this this you know uh, analytics driven, well to do manager in the shape of Terry Francona, who he man who he, who was a manager above him uh, at in Cleveland, and um, you're not seeing any of that inventive work at all. And and he's not he doesn't seem to be reading the room, if you will, because I've been I you know I saw familiar back out there. I was like, I don't know whether it was this game or, or when it was, but I was like, oh, he's back in the ninth. Uh, and and then you see this. I mean, familiar has not pitched well in the ninth inning for a very long time at this point now, and it's a big reason why we we have the record we have is because of the bullpen, and part of that is familiar. A big part of that is familiar. And it seemed to be working when he had a little – he was back at where he began when uh, Mejia was the closer. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm – I'm, I, I forget exactly where this entire rant began other than Juris Familia, but basically, yeah, I, I do sell everybody. And, and interestingly enough, Jose Batista is not terrible right now. And if you can get anything back for that contract, then I, you know, store a store a, a you know a hard throwing reliever in in Double A, whatever. So you, Sam, and I seem to all advocate being extremely active at the deadline. Um, I think we're saying basically listen to offers for anything not nailed down, which is nothing. Um, but but again, you know, but be wise, but but get younger, right? I think that's our strategy. Um, can we, Fair enough, uh, guys. can we elaborate, can we elaborate on um, uh, Mezzarocco? Uh, Mike mentioned Mezzarocco. I mean, 
his batting average is a little low, but um, he came here, uh, I think, under the Mendoza line. Maybe I'm wrong, but he's got a 220 batting average, a 322 on base percentage, and he's slugging 430. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what his Mets numbers are. I'm going to try to bring up the splits right now as I talk, but um, he has been exactly what we've been looking for in terms of consistency from, from the catcher position. He's giving us some power. He's got given us some RBI numbers and he's given us some really good game calling. Uh, I haven't really, you know, I haven't been able to watch overly watch the games at, at any point, but how is his defense guys? And I'll pass it on to you, Rich, as the host. His defense, you know, he, he's only, I saw a stat just the other day. I think he's thrown out three of 14 base dealers. So not good there. But the pitchers rave about him calling the game. He's fearless behind the plate. You know, he'll, he'll catch the ball and he'll, he'll put a tag on a runner coming in. He seems to be good on blocking balls in the dirt. He's been crossed up a few times, uh, which kind of raised my eyebrows. But, you know, we have to keep in mind he's still new to the organization, so maybe just a little bit of that. Um, but, you know, Mezzarocco's an interesting case. You know, Mike, you said you'd like to keep him around. I would like to keep him around, too, and Sam, you would, too. Um, because he is on the end of his contract. So does he have value to a contender? I'm going to argue no, although they did trade Rene Rivera, who was, you know, a, was a backup catcher. So could he be somebody's backup that they want? Maybe. But I think he has more value to the Mets, because I don't think I don't know of any catchers in this system who are ready to come up, and please don't tell me Nito. So, um, so yes, I would try to keep Mezzarocco around, given his, you know, pedestrian statistics, I think he would sign a one-year deal after this year for a reasonable amount of money. So, sure, I'd love to keep him around. I like him, too. Um, so, guys, I'm going to throw you a curveball. We have a couple other items to get to um, that are on our, our post about the show, and we'll get to them. But we, di- we didn't talk about this. I'm going to just ask for your, your candid reaction to it. So, uh, so, Mike, I'll go to you first on this one. A story came out about a week ago that Major League Baseball is a bit concerned because attendance is down 6%. Um, now, that may not sound like a lot, but 6% on a large number is a lot of people, and it's a lot of money. And there are all these different ideas about, you know, and Manfred apparently wants to look at some things to try to address that. So I'm going to give you an idea I have and ask you guys for an idea or two that if they did a fan poll and they said, okay, Sam Maxwell, Michael Collin, give us some ideas as to what we could do to address this, this issue of, of declining attendance. Mine is this one. Start night games at 640, right? I know the Rockies do that out there, Sam. I think it's the greatest idea ever because if that game ends about 915, 930, a lot of kids can watch all or most of the game. And believe me, like I tell my fa- my family all the time, Major League Baseball has me, you know, at my age. But I'm not the customer they want. They want to get the younger person because the game has to be sustainable over the long term. And so what are you going to do? You have to start getting these people as kids. Make the game more available to them. Start earlier. Have more day games on the weekends. I think they could I don't think you have to change the rules. I don't think you have to talk about shifts and banning the shifts is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If you want to stop people shifting, lay down a damn bunt. But I think what they could do is around the packaging of the game. Make it more available. Stop with the stupid Sunday night games. Have games at times that kids can watch them. Maybe 
there was something the Orioles, I think, did this year where all Sunday games, a family of four can go for $40 for upper deck. That's amazing. $10 a ticket. It's like minor league baseball. So start making the game more available, whether it's prices, uh, you know, for families or timing of the game, something like that. So, Mike, if I'm asking you, Mike LaCollin, what what would you do to help address, to stem the tide of uh, 6% declining attendance? I can't add much more than that, Rich. You you nailed it. You know, I'm with you. Uh, I'll get, stop. They're tinkering with the game too much. There's something to be said for over legislation, you know, politically or in or in the sports world, uh, and apathy sets in. Uh, but different generations, different needs, different reactions, and different results. Uh, as you say, they already got us. You know, we're brand loyal. With the Mets, toothpaste, you name it, we're brand loyal. That's what happens. And and the gig is always trying to recruit the new customer. Uh, so perhaps I might be out of touch with that, but I do know they're piss, pissing me off with over-legislating the game. This is a vastly different game it was from the days, you know, that I, I grew to love it and became passionate with it. And I don't know. I really don't know, but it's a generational thing. And as you say, the time, uh, they lost an entire generation because, you know, they weren't able to watch the World Series and the playoffs and whatnot. Rich, you're right. Come on. Bring back some old school sensibilities back into the game. They did it with ballparks. They realized that the cookie cutter didn't work. It was horrible, and it was horrible for the game, and it was horrible for the game's image. So they came back and gave us retro ballparks. All right, well, let the game, you know, invite some old sensibilities back into the game. Stop over-legislating it. That's my perspective as a guy who's above 50 now. You know what I mean? I can't say that somebody in their 20s is going to agree with me. They might, they might not. But that's what I'm saying. Well, they I might, think I'm, no. in my, I'm in my 30s, and I agree with you. And... Uh, um, so there it is. I mean, and people are, you know, especially the younger generation are viewing games much more differently than I'm certainly accustomed to. You know, I I, I run for the TV. I don't even know how how to you know go about watching a game on a device. I'll be perfectly honest with you because I've never tried. I'm a caveman in that respect. So maybe okay. they lost. Maybe I'm one of those six percent. You know, I I don't know. Different venues, and uh, who knows? But you know, it being must see TV, being must see TV is all their own fault. All their own fault. You know, bring back double headers, an earlier start time. You know, perhaps even contract the season. You know, they've been expanding for far too long. There's something to be said for elasticity. Maybe they need to contract their, you know, their aspirations a little bit and bring this back into into focus and like a, like a stock market correction. You know, it expands, it expands, and then, boom, you have your correction. Well, maybe baseball needs a correction. That's all I can say. Well, great stuff, Mike. And so, Sam, yes, I'm going to you next. Um, but I think this is fascinating because you just heard from two guys over 50 about what we think and and um because remember mike and sam one more thing before i go to you when we were kids 
the Mets game started at 8.05. 8.05, remember that? And yeah, but for some reason they still got the games done in two hours and ten minutes. It's maybe over by 10.15. But, but now the game is longer. Okay, you know, I'm not going to sit here and beat my shoe on the table and say make the game shorter. Whatever, man. You know, it's baseball. It's not timed. But start the freaking game earlier so we can watch it. Don't try to – my point is this. Don't try to tinker with a beautiful game. Make it more available around the edges. Market it better. You don't have to tinker with the game on the field. So, Sam, as a younger man, what's your perspective? I love this. What's your perspective? Well, uh, to go with what you were saying about getting the younger audience, um, besides the fact that you do need to start it early, the, the whole World Series thing is absolutely ridiculous. For the way that they the way that they have um, everything going. Uh, sorry, hold on for a second. Excuse me. Um, anyway, uh, the way the way I see it is that you're talking about trying to not get the the younger people distracted, which is exactly what I was just as I uh, was talking to a, a fellow friend uh, of ours, by the way, who may or may not chime in very very shortly, but. Um, I think that if you're trying to get the younger generation in there, as much as we will all want it to call right right now, how are you supposed to keep anybody? Uh, uh, how are you supposed to keep anybody's attention if you were constantly stopping and starting the game? And the way they're doing it is not efficient. They could do it so much more efficiently one way or the other. Even if it, you didn't have manager challenges, maybe even. Maybe even if you just had the crew back in Chelsea just throw, before the next or the next play, uh, you throw a red dot onto somewhere that the umpires see and they, they, they pause it. Maybe that's the only way. There's no manager challenge that, that just completely negates uh, any of the excitement out of anything. Um, there, there's a lot. There's a lot to be said about too much progress, and I don't think that they implemented the replay very, very well at all. And I think we're at this point when you're thinking to yourself, if we're trying to manage the time of the game and we're trying to keep young people interested in the game and watching the game, how can we be stopping and starting as much as we do now? D- don't even get me started on replay. You're so right. You are so right, Sam. A thousand times because the NHL's got it right. They okay, goal. They're already reviewing it. They don't have to do the stupid freaking Mickey Mouse headset for God's sakes. I mean, you know, let's stop with that nonsense. Ha- pay people. We have enough umpires. Hire a few more guys. Have them in Chelsea watching every game so they're on it. You make a the umpire puts the red dot or whatever on the field. That's an automatic review. They've already watched it. They communicate the decision. Done. Yes, agreed. Anything else? I think we have a young fan. We're going to go generational here. So uh, we have a young fan on hold who I'll get to in just a moment. But what else, Sam? Any other ideas to make the game more more appealing and to address the 6% decline in attendance? Uh, In terms of, I mean, you you might also be talking about the old fans. Uh, You know, you're not getting the young fans, and then the old fans are like, this is not the game I like. Uh, Then that's the combination. So you also need to figure out how are you going to get the traditionalists back in? And maybe you guys want to want to ride with that. Maybe maybe 
uh, before we let the other young fan on, I know you guys already had plenty of ideas, but here, here's a question for you, Mike. Do you go to as many games as you uh, used to, and not just because you don't have the time? Is, is it just because you don't have the time, or, or is it an other reason? The more Major League Baseball pisses me off with their over-legislation of just about everything, the more I divert my funds to road trips. Because the same money that I would spend at Yankee Stadium or City Field, I divert towards hotels and filling up my car with gas and going to minor league baseball games and having nice dinners and hanging out with my wife and road tripping. That's my answer. The more they piss me off, the more I'm entertaining myself elsewhere. I don't have the sensibilities I had when I was a teen or a 20-year-old. When I was Mr. Walk-Up, through my 30s and into my early 40s. But everything changed when, you know, the conversion from Shea Stadium to City Field, something inside me clicked as well, okay? But I used to be Mr. Walk-Up, but I choose to live life differently now. And I, I, I spend less and less time at City Field these days, uh, far less time than I ever did attending Met games in my entire life. But I'm, and you not were, going you any less, I'm, not, right? I'm not attending games any less. I'm just going to different places to go see baseball. You were there last night, though, right? Yeah. Uh. Um, but, Mike, one more thing. You said pissing you off. What pisses you off in specific? Well, I, again, you know, all the rule changes are just a shock to my sensibilities. The catcher rule, the neighborhood play, uh, you know, the time clock replay. You name it, uh, it's just a lack of teaching these kids how to play. You know, I I say teach. Look, if you if you go through history, all you see is shortstop and second baseman pirouetting away from incoming, you know, base runners. Players today don't know how to get out of the way of incoming pitches. They don't have these skills anymore. I can only watch strikeouts and home runs so much. To me, baseball is much more fun when you slot the ball the other way and my runner goes from first to third. They always Amen, used to brother. Say triple, they always used to say the triple was the most exciting play in baseball. I can only watch so many strikeouts and home runs. You want to hear something scary? Giancarlo Stanton won the MVP last year with, with the Marlins. Did he not? He did. I defy anyone listening, and I defy you guys. Look up Dave Kingman's stats from 1979 and tell me they're any different, which is to say we're looking at a league filled with Dave Kingman's. They're not doing anything outstanding anymore, and that's what I mean by pissing me off. They don't play small ball, not that they need to, but they don't know how to. You know, it, when when the long ball, look, I, you know, when I was a kid, I was taught by my family members, no less, by my family members. Within every at-bat, within every count, there's one pitch that has home run written all over it. Either you get it or you don't. And then you conform to the count. You know, and if that meant hacking away at a, at a 2-0 pitch 
or being careful with two strikes and going the other way, throwing your, string, your swing or whatever it was, none of that exists anymore. None of it, because the stats say don't bother, just draw a walk and wait for somebody to hit a home run. It's far easier, blah, blah, blah. But they don't realize that makes a boring-ass baseball. There's a lot of standing around. And a lot of striking out. I want to see runners moving around the diamond. I want to see hits. I want to see singles, doubles, triples, and home runs. I want to see defensive gems. But I can't because everyone's striking out. I see less and less, you know, ballet out in the outfield and in the infield performed by defensive marvels. I see less and less of it because... There's less and less balls in play. That's why they have 6% drop in interest, perhaps. Oh, Rich, you started me. I need to shut up. I got you, though. I feel everything you said. Um, and so now, I think thanks to Sam, we're going to go total generational here. Because Mike and I just talked about, you know, from guys over 50, what we think about the game today and what, what we think uh, might be some reasons why there's six percent attendance drop, and I think we both agreed that um, that it could be a lot about the the style of baseball, not not the length of the game, but it's the style of the game. It, it's no small ball, no triples, you know, home run strikeout. I agree completely. We talked about starting the game earlier that we thought that would help. Um, so now I'm going to introduce a voice that, if you've listened to this podcast and a previous one that the three of us used to be on. This voice is not unfamiliar to you if you're a listener. Um, he's a fine young man, and uh, he's been dubbed for purposes of the show Long Island Mike. Uh, he's an aspiring meteorologist and a very passionate, opinionated Met fan who I believe, Mike, is uh, 16-ish, 16, 17-ish. Is that right? 17 and a half, turning 18 in December. There you go, Listen, man. We heard him grow up on the show. Oh, my God. I can't believe the voice I hear right now. I can't believe it. The voice. Oh, he's like, he's like our little man has grown up. He's all grown stuff. He's all grown <laughs> Mike, yeah. talk to us. So, all right, it's going to be unfair, so I can't just make you talk about the 6% decline. I, I want to ask you about that. But before you do, Mike, I- I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Just go ahead. Ran about the Mets, Mike. Go. This is the worst team I've ever seen in the history of my uh, remembrance of the Mets. <laughs> I'm missing my uh, <laughs> uh, Callaway needs to be fired. He's a clueless manager. He has no idea what he's doing. Uh, get another bench coach in there because, which I just saw on Twitter uh, today, that the Mets are the only team for a new manager not to have an experienced bench coach in the National League. So that's not helping Callaway out either. Uh it, they're all selfish at bats by the Mets. It's like uh, I think Mike said it before. It's either strikeout or home run. There's no moving the base runners over. There's no more taking that extra base like in April there was. I distract Cabrera's hurt now, but it's a 10-day DL for a reason. Uh, the, the Mets are again. They say they want to upgrade their training staff, which they did, but they're still not utilizing the 10-day DL. It makes no sense. You had Jay Bruce. I don't know how long injured, and obviously he's doing terrible this year. You pitch hit him, that backdates him. That doesn't. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
you you no longer can use uh, the last time he played because he pitched hit. So now you have to use that day for the ten days. You know, the back day. No yeah, I can't backdate him. Thank you. So that's stupid. I don't no clue what the Mets are doing. The Mets need to rip down the whole system. Trade the entire team, and I'm serious. Trade Degrom, Syndergaard. I'm done, I'm dead serious. The Mets need to do what the Yankees did a couple of years ago. Tear it all down. Be back in contention in two years. I say trade Degrom to the Yankees. Give me Clint Frazier, uh, Floriel, and one of their top pitching prospects. I'll trade Degrom in a heartbeat. Okay, well, yeah, we should get to that. Um, but I, I do want to get to that proposed trade with the Yankees that ran on Twitter today. So, Mike, you know, so it sounds like I'll tell you what, and we've hit on a good one here because at your age, Major League Baseball thinks that they're attracting you and people your age by home runs, by the launch angle, the whole thing. But if I heard you correctly, you said, I think, I think you said you prefer to see the base hits in the small ball, right? Yes, I do. Well, there you go. Like, uh, you listening, Rob Manfred? I'm going to send you a tape. Um, we have a guy here who <laughs> watches every damn game, right? He goes to a lot of games. I've seen him at City Field. He goes to games. This is your customer. This is the customer you want. When he's a, a meteorologist on Channel 2 in New York, he's going to be making a lot of money and be able to buy season tickets. You want to keep him happy. So, um, so anyway, all right. So, guys, uh, I'm going to wheel it around real quick because we're actually running out of time now. Uh, we're getting down there. So, Story ran on Twitter today that um, somebody close to Steinbrenner apparently said that the Yankees offered the Mets Gary Sanchez, Justice Sheffield, and Clint Frazier for Jacob DeGrom, and the Mets said, you got to do better. So what do you think of that? Initial reaction. So, Sam, you first. What do you think of that deal? I mean, I think, not to say that it's too early to trade Jacob DeGrom, but I can totally understand if that actually was thrown out in whenever it is right now, I, I, you know. <laughs> like, however they're compartmentalizing what they could potentially, you know. There's still, I mean, that sounds that sounds crazy and almost unbelievable. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to analyze that entire situation because, um, Gary Sanchez also just went on the DL. Uh, Jacob DeGrom right now has a one-something ERA. He's having one of the greatest stretches not only in Mets history but in baseball history. You know what? Damn right. Actually, when you really consider it, damn right. He's, he's, he's Zach Greinke for the Royals during that year when Zach Greinke was Zach Greinke, when they sucked that bad. You're going, to tra- you're going to trade him just for, for that? Especially Clint Frazier was on the DL earlier in the year. Gary Sanchez is on the DL now. He was on the DL at some point. You also, have to, you also have to think about Yankee Stadium in this regard with a lot of these players, too. Mike from, Mike from Brooklyn, what do you think? Uh, I'll take a different tact on this. Uh, if anything, they were smart not to pounce on the first offer that came from the field. Uh, I have no issue at all with that story. I wasn't aware of it. Uh, but if the Yankees want him bad enough, they'll come back with another offer. Simple as that. Business is business. Agreed. Long Island, Mike, what do you think? Uh, Gary Sanchez garbage this year. He's a terrible defensive catcher. I reject the trade in a heartbeat. 
You're right, though. You're right. Sanchez is attractive because he has home runs, but he's a terrible defensive catcher. Um, and Justice Sheffield, I mean, I've heard mixed things about him, and I've heard mixed things about Clint Frazier, so you're not giving me a one-dimensional catcher and two maybes for the best pitcher of a generation, perhaps. So, no. Thank you very much, but no. Um, also read today that um, possible landing spots for DeGrom, should they trade him, which I don't think they will and they shouldn't. Uh, sorry to disagree with you, Long Island Mike, but I don't think they should. Um, Milwaukee is apparently um, a good partner for the Mets because they really need the starting pitcher, and they're really deep on young position players. But anyway, who knows? It's all speculation. All right, guys, so we need to turn the corner to our last couple of segments here. And um, and so this one is for Sam and Mike, and I'll go to you first, Sam. Um, these guys are baseball historians much more so than I am. So I'm going to ask them for their commentary, to which I will not be contributing because I, I just don't have the same level of knowledge. So if you guys would like to say a few words about the 1913 season in New York baseball, and, and for those who don't know, we take the number of the show. This is our 13th episode, and we play with it a little bit. So we'll talk about historical baseball 1913, and then I'll uh, Long Island Mike and I will come back in for the 2013 New York Mets. But for now, Sam and Mike, and Sam first, 1913, what happened in New York baseball? Well, for one thing, a major, major event in 1913 happened for New York baseball, and not just New York baseball. For Brooklyn baseball, who has always been a very independent spirit at that. And Brooklyn baseball got, right in the heart of Brooklyn, a cathedral of baseball, if you will, that was coined after the person who uh, brought it to fruition, and that was Charlie Epps. And he did have some help with that of Steve and Ed McKeever, two brothers. Um, they, uh, they helped at the end push it forward. Uh, unfortunately, the Ballpark, as unbelievable as it was, probably wasn't adaptable enough, and that probably helped lead to its demise. But in 1913, um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, yeah, we just talked about this in, 19, in 1912 that Casey Stengel was a September call-up that year. So this was Casey Stengel's first year in the majors, first full year in the majors. I, I will go to the beginning um the first game they ever won was never counted, and that was an exhibition against the Yankees. Mike, am I right? And I, I'm going to have to scope this out on um, on baseball uh, reference, but didn't they win that game one nothing against the Yankees? And Casey Yay! singled out the winning hit. Talk about putting me on the spot, bro. Yeah, Ooh, I'm no. looking, I'm trying to find it. I'm trying. It's a hard thing to. I'm going to have to go to Google about it, but. Ebbets game was against the Yankees, who were recently coined the Yankees. So the first game that ever took place was an exhibition between what had been the New York Highlanders a year before and what were now the New York Yankees. How fitting is that? And I'm I'm pretty sure they won a very close game, if not a one nothing ball ball game. But Mike, uh, the the Dodgers of that time. While I look uh, this up, please. Not a very good season for them. Sixty-five and eighty-four. They finished sixth place. The Superbuds. What exactly so, are you looking for? This was Bill Dolan's last season as manager. 
Well, yeah, I, I, we also had Zach Weed, of course. He was an outfielder who ended up being a Hall of Famer, hitting 301, 335 OPB, and a 430 slugging uh, that year. Seven home runs, 58 RBIs. This is here's something crazy, though, uh, Mike. And you can take a look at this, and uh, maybe maybe you know the the name, but George Cutshaw, that year for the 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 Brooklyn Superbas, hit 267 with a 315 on base percentage, only a 385 slugging percentage. But he also collected, along with seven home runs, he collected 80 RBIs. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of numbers were were going on RBI wise back then, but that must have been something monstrous. But that- for that era, that was something, indeed. Uh, that shouldn't go underspoken. You're absolutely right in that. All right. So I'm still trying to hunt down that uh, that page. Uh, uh, why don't you start with the Giants while I try to hunt down the, the uh, exhibition game, Ebbets Field? Well, I know we're trying to squeeze this all in, but the Giants finished 101-51, first place in the National League, Again, and yet again, they lost their third straight World Series and their second in a matter of three years to the Philadelphia A's. Imagine that, losing three straight World Series. Before the Buffalo Bills or this, that, the other, <laughs> we had the New York Giants losing three straight World Series. Could you imagine us back then? The vitriol we would have for this team. Break it up. What are they doing? Come on. Something's got to give. Three straight. McGraw's got to go. Ship him out. So it is what it is. Uh, and very quickly about, yes, the New York Yankees, the newly christened Yankees. So long to Hilltop Park. Hello, Polo Grounds. Yankees' first season playing uh, in the aforementioned Polo Grounds. Okay, I'm going to read you know, something I just found. I'm going to. I'm. Uh, I'm sorry, Rich, to cut you off because I just want to. I just want to wrap this part up. Uh, April 5th, 1913, Ebbets Field, Brooklyn Dodgers, Brooklyn Superbas, as we know, New York Yankees. Uh, it looks like the Dodgers would soon take a 2 nothing lead thanks to an inside-the-park home run from Casey Stengel and a deep drive from Jake Dawson. As the Brooklyn Daily Eagle put it, the homers brought in thunders of applause that rattled over the valley and Dell like the roar of artillery going into action with 10-pounders, quote, end quote. After the Yankees tied it in the top of the ninth on a throwing error from reliever Frank Allen, Red Smith made sure the Brooklyn fans went home happy. With Zach Weed on third base, Smith hit a line drive to center field to give the Dodgers the 3-2 victory. There you go. You know, I learn something every time you guys do this, and wow. So 1913 was the year that the Yankees became the Yankees. I knew that they played in the polo grounds, but um, I did not realize they moved into the polo grounds in 1913. And um, so, in summary, then, the team that had the best year would, would again be the New York Giants. And, Mike, you're right, though, because it conjures up that old discussion. They won three they, – I'm sorry, they lost three World Series in a row, but they won three National League pennants in a row. Are you a half-full or half-empty guy? How do you want to look at that? You know, one way or the other. Kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. There you go. And, and you um, know what? New York media was no less uh, – huge and impactful uh, than it is now, I would venture to say. Yeah, on a relative scale, sure. It was bigger. It was bigger. It was definitely bigger. There was more pressure, technically. There was less people concentrating because there was less people in general in the 
uh, Brooklyn and the world and everywhere in New York. But uh, yeah, I, that that it, there, everything has closed significantly since when it comes to the journalistic world. There you are. All right, men, we're going to jump into DeLorean and we're going to go fast forward. Uh, 100 years, and we're going to, you know, whiz right by World War II, the Korean conflict, Vietnam, Cold War, all that stuff, and go to 2013. <laughs> and yeah, like, <laughs> and one of my favorite jokes, no, the Cold War was not one that was only fought in the winter, right? So anyway, um, so, all right. So actually, we're going to go to Long Island Mike here first. We're going to do this quickly. So 2013, yeah. New York Mets. Long Island Mike, you were 11 that season, which is kind of funny. Um, no, you were, you were 12. I'm sorry, you were 12 that season. So um, what what are your thoughts on 2013? Do you have any particular memories of the 2013 Mets you'd like to share with us? Uh, believe it or not, Matt Harvey was good. Uh, yep. The Mets hosted the All-Star game. Uh, I remember during the off-season, uh, the Mets got Noah Syndergaard and Ellis for Dickey. Uh, Mejia was an idiot back then, and most importantly, the Mets swept the Yankees in the Subway Series. That's good stuff, Mike. Very good. That, that's those are those are solid examples. All right, Sam, twenty thirteen Mets. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking how awful they were at this point, and then they played pretty solid baseball for the rest of the year. That was the thing, you know, Eric Young Jr. was was a significant force in that second half. Uh, Unfortunately, we weren't able to play crazy to the point of 1973 style, if you will. But 2013, you know, we were starting to see some some things starting to develop. It's really funny looking at uh, uh, the the top 12 players when you're on baseball reference because you see only four people in Metsats, and one of them is Matt Harvey. So, in 2013, Josh Statton is a San Diego Padre now, apparently. Mike, 2013 Mets. Uh, Zach Wheeler was on that team, which goes to show that he's only just getting started. Uh, And otherwise, Long Island Mike nailed it, you know. He really did. I can't add much more. Really can't. I mean, David David Wright was still... David Wright, I guess, but, you know, he nailed it. When I think of 2013, I think of Super Tuesday, uh, this doubleheader sweep over the Braves with Harvey and Wheeler, and even though the Mets were clearly destined for, you know, fourth or fifth place, you saw something. You know, you saw, wow, man, you know, if they could harness these two guys and build around them, this could be something. Um, The other memories that, that I have would be, uh, taking my daughter to both the um, home run hitting contest as well as the all-star game, which, you know, Mike, you know, as a parent, you know that. I mean, it, when you could share something like that with your kid, I mean, the all-star game is, is probably one of the, what, top five, six sporting events in the country. You know, Super Bowl, um, you know, World Series, maybe NBA championship, but the baseball all-star game is up there. And to yeah. be able to, you know, share that and, and go to that, that was great. Uh, both the All-Star Game and the Home Run Hitting Contest, I think they were the two hottest days of the century. Um, they were, it was probably 99 degrees and humid at the start of both of those events, and it was incredibly uncomfortable at City Field, but thankful for the opportunity to do that. Um, and, yeah, Eric Young was my man, you know, that he came to the Mets that year. And, but let's remember that closing day that year was, the, was Mike Piazza Day. 
And um, that was a fun day. Guys, 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 I just want to say that, like, I know that, like, we're pressed for time, but isn't it, doesn't it say at all that none of us really, like, focused in, except for, you know, Rich, you said Super Tuesday, but none of us focused in on that Harvey. Well, Long Island Mike did, but in a backhanded kind of a way. <laughs> he said, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it, it, it basically created the monster. 2013, in the context of everything, created the monster. How was that You're guy right. doing on the road? <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to do number 13, and then we're going to wrap it up. So, um, Mets to wear number 13. You guys all have the list. Everybody has Google these days. I'm, I'm just going to mention one, and then I'll let you guys go, uh, you know, say a few words about anybody who jumps out to you. I'm going to start with with Lee Mazzilli. Lee Mazzilli, Brooklyn-born Lee Mazzilli. You know, in the mid-'70s when the Mets were terrible, he came up. Brooklyn guy, good-looking guy, everybody loved him. Gave fans something to root for. Um, Was never a great player, but was solid. And uh, when he did the SNY booth, you know, for a couple of years, I thought he was great. He had that, you know, that Brooklyn get-out-of-my-way kind of a thing. Uh, So I'm going to go with Lee Mazzilli. How about you, Sam? We'll go to you next. Number 13. Well, when I look at this, it's, you know, it's short, it's overwhelming. I mean, underwhelming, excuse me, <laughs> obviously. Um, Alex Cora, just because 2009 was terrible, and he, he was number 13 in 2010 just because, I guess. Uh, I think he was number three in 2009. But really, when you look at it, uh, yeah, you say Lee Mazzilli, but I got, you know, it's got to be Edgardo Alfonso takes number 13. I mean, he obviously did it. It's just another player that unfortunately could not sustain that greatness in Mets history. But at the same time, Edgardo Alfonso was great when he was great for the Mets. He, I think, other than Roger Craig, but Roger Craig wasn't number 13 in 1962, so that doesn't even count really. Um, I, I have to give this to Edgardo Alfonso. Uh, Neil Allen, just because Neil Allen is, is just a classic uh you know, the has been era of the Mets if if you will. Um it it's uh it's I I like seeing that name. It reminds me of, of how awesome it is to hear you guys talk of those awful years. <laughs> and he came he was the guy that got us Keith Hernandez. So all right, Long Island Mike, number thirteen. Anybody jump out to you? Billy Wagner. I love that guy. I don't know why. I guess he was good in my opinion. He as a People say otherwise, but I like them. And then also I struggle a couple of them right now because people always hated when the uh, signing went down. I remember watching the winter meetings when we signed. People were like, oh, this is the worst move ever. And now look at where we are. He's uh, basically the MVP of the team right now, besides Nemo and Dick Graham. All right. Mike from, Long I- Mike from Brooklyn, excuse me. <laughs> I'm going to throw Rick Sharon out there. Because he was the founder of the Newark Bears. I don't think many people know that. Unfortunately, they're a defunct organization now. But I just figured I'd throw it out there. Rick Saron founded the Newark Bears, uh, originally of the Atlantic League, then in their later years of the Can-Am League, and since have gone out of business. But he had a nice little stadium built for them in Newark, and uh, he was the lead guy in that whole, uh, whole operation. Once upon a time, he had since sold. And there you go. Very good. Excellent. And remember, the Mets or the Yankees, one of them had a PR guy named Rick Cerrone, but it wasn't the same guy. And it was spelled a little differently, but it, it was one had two R's, one had one R. 
But if you remember that, um, I think it was the Yankees. What their PR guy was Rick Cerrone, and their catcher was Rick Cerrone. Then Rick Cerrone, the catcher, played for the Mets. So, Mike, thanks for that reference. Um, all right, men, it's time for the last word. Uh, we will go young man first. Uh, Long Island Mike, what's your last word tonight? Uh, to the owners of MLB stadiums, lower your food prices. Maybe that will get your attendance up also. And uh, to the World Ponds, sell the team. Okay, great. All right, Mike LaCollant, your last word. Uh, if I could coin a phrase, hail to the Chiefs. I, I said it before, I want a president of baseball operations. Excellent. Sam, mastermind behind the Metsian podcast, what's your last word? You burn it down. <laughs> Not this podcast. <laughs> Torch it. There you go. So what, what, All right. Uh, you guys, you guys watch. You guys watch Thirty Rock. In the day, I did. Right. You know where Jack used to go? Shut it down. Shut it down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, burning it down would be rebuilding it. Shutting it down would be doing me a favor. Just shut it down and make it stop. It's painful every night. Um, all right. Uh, my last word is going to be the one that Sam always uses. Let's go Mets. All right, guys. I thoroughly enjoyed this show. I think we touched on everything. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for calling in Long Island, Mike. And there's nothing left to say, but let's go Mets. Have a good night, guys. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Have a good night.